Welcome back to Mark's Madness. And we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. And this should be the first episode where both of us have our mixers working and everything is good. Sincere apologies for last week and the hellscape that it was. Yeah. Uh, Now, some of you were probably like really thrilled. And it's like, oh, man, they turned Nathan down four notches. And that's (laughs) that's delightful. Uh, And for those of you, I see you. I respect you. uh, But you hurt my soul a little bit. And that's okay. It was it was a throwback to the early Mark's Madness days for different reasons to sound like that. But yeah, yeah, it, it was, was definitely a throwback to to some of the earlier garbage recording. Um, I think our recording's always been not trash, but yeah, last week was not good, and I apologize for that. Uh, may culpa, may culpa. Uh, that being said, we have a lot to get to this week, so we're going to launch right into it. My name yeah. is Nathan. My name is David. All right. So first things first, current events. There is only one current event. Uh, there is a there is the event. Uh, and it is not that it, there's only one. It's that, that there's definitely one that that needs it's to that be there's definitely about. one that we have to talk about. And and nobody has the brain capacity for anything else because holy shit. Yes, because everything is melting. Uh, Afghanistan, David. Yeah. A complicated yeah. land. Now, see, there's Tell another thing it. we could have current event on. I just don't know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows global warming is a thing and everything's on fire. Um, okay, so Afghanistan. So. <laughs> <laughs> long ago. Long ago. No, I mean, people People kind of know the backstory here a little bit, right? I mean, you know, in the 70s, a, a socialist government came to power in, the, in Afghanistan. Uh, this is an extremely, extremely old um, country. I mean, the cities in it are old. Everything's old. So, I mean, to look down upon it too, um, like oh, look, look at those uncivilized people when they had civilization long before any of us were here. Um, uh, but anyway, so you know, I mean, the seventies, a socialist government came to power, and the United States couldn't have that, and immediately went to work destroying the country with subversive, um you know, payments and weapons and training to right-wing jihadists who at the time were called the Mujahideen, okay? Um, The brave Mujahideen, I think. The brave Mujahideen. Uh, And and again, you know, I mean, Mujahideen is is a a, uh, Islamic term, right? Um, But, I mean, they've kind of poisoned that word. (laughs) Yes. Um, Because these were right-wing death squads, they were there to destabilize the country. Um, a lot of countries had buy-in on this. The United States uh, obviously wanted two things, right? They wanted control of the natural resources. That's what always they always, always want. And there's a lot of specifically mineral resources in Afghanistan and, of course, opium. Um, of course. And every time the United States occupies, that opium production goes way up. We'll get to that in a second. So... So with that, they started funding these these Mujahideen, okay? And the Mujahideen would later, you know, I mean, we know a bunch of um, groups have splintered out of the Mujahideen, right? Um, and so it's not that the United States and Operation Cyclone specifically said, all right, Al-Qaeda, I mean, Al-Qaeda didn't exist at the time. It was called the MAK, and it was part of the Mujahideen. You know, Al-Qaeda, I'm giving you this specific gun or anything like that, right? But to understand it as the United States created and, weaponized and trained al-qaeda is nonetheless correct right um and the same thing they created this power vacuum and out of these power vacuum came the taliban in 94 i think the mid 90s 
and then kind of took over. And that's what ended this, this, you know, two decade long or well, nearly two decade long civil war that they had. Um, and so it's correct to say again that the United States, uh, you know, cr- essentially created the Taliban by uh, funding and backing the Mujahideen. Uh, but there will be people who will be like, oh, well, Mujahideen and the Taliban aren't exactly the same thing, even though this is a group that emerged from there and a bunch of, of the Mujahideen as the Taliban gained power joined. And the ones that didn't were the ones that were traveling to other countries to go destabilize Yugoslavia next. Um, again, <laughs> you know, including like the MAK, which would later be Al Qaeda. Um, and so the Taliban is, you know, not good. <laughs> not good. This is a this is a this is a hot take you're going to get here yes. only here on yes. Mark's Madness. Mark's uh, Madness. Taliban, Taliban, not good. Not good. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they they take power in the power vacuum created by the United States. They rule there for a few years, and then you know opium poppies um, were used. Um, to de- help destabilize, you know, along with the, the war loss and the economic pressures and stuff, to help destabilize uh, the Soviet Union, kind of, kind of like you know, creating a new opium war type situation, and and that did have a destabilizing effect that helped lead to the collapse. It was one of the many factors. Uh, then, of course, you know, you wanted to keep up those opium sales, so you know, you saw uh, heroin addictions. I mean, globally. But Look, not- the Sackler fa- the Sackler family is not going to make a quadrillion dollars yeah. if we don't create a mild opioid epidemic. Exactly, and and then in two thousand, you suddenly see uh, the Taliban outlawed uh, the production and and export of opium, and it plummeted to like you know a thousand tons instead of. 2 million tons or no, maybe a hundred tons instead of 2000 tons, whatever it was. I mean, just these absurd amounts of opium just plummeted. And then as soon as September 11th happens, um, Taliban says, you know what? Yeah, no, we got, we got Osama bin Laden. We'll hand him over to a third party, uh, Saudi, um, handler and, and hand him over to you that way. Right. We're at, we, we'll give you some, we, we have, we have no reason to defend him. We don't care. We, we'll give them to you. And the United States went, yeah, no, we want to make a war in your country and went in and just leveled um, Afghanistan. And immediately you saw, you know, what was 2000 tons of, of opium uh, export jump to 4000 immediately. And of course, you know, suddenly we have this opioid epidemic. It's like these things correlate. Um, and then there's materialism, there's, folks, materialism, yes, materialism. And then 20 years of just utter death and destruction to the point where there's still news articles coming out in 2019 about how, you know, it's the corrupt Afghan U.S. puppet government that only really has power in urban areas anyway. They never really had any rural power. The, the Taliban held rural areas basically the entire time. Um, so, you know, this puppet government never had rural power. And so, you know, you see articles like 2019, 2020, where they're doing reports that are saying that this government that is trained and backed by the United States and the United States forces combined kill a lot more people than the Taliban. And uh, and then it's like, oh, well, (laughs) that's not how you would popular support. Um, And mind you, I mean, this is. Yes, women's rights improved a little bit in urban areas, but overall rights, overall conditions, not that much. Rural areas, you saw no difference. You know, life was not changing because that's not why the U.S. was there. They'll they'll sell, you know, bullshit like that 
um, you know, all of a sudden all the all the Republicans are feminists uh, to go save everyone from from the Taliban. Um, and so, the you know, they'll sell things like that, but they they didn't care. They weren't doing any of that. Right. They were they were getting gold out. They were getting minerals out. Uh, they were, uh, you know, reinvigorating the the opium trade and uh, basically the source of 90 percent of the world's illicit illicit uh, opium opioids. Um, so, you know, I mean, they, they go and they don't do anything that that's all that different. And finally the U S decides to pull out, you know, the war's gotten on too long. It's getting expensive. It's probably starting to get bad PR. Maybe, maybe this is a turn to China. Maybe this is a sign that the U S empire is starting to weaken externally, um, or is just running out of money in the wars that they've done. Um, and, and the war just got too expensive, uh, not really sure exactly what it was, but the U.S. decided to, to, to pull out. And obviously it was very, very hasty. They didn't seem to care. They were getting dogs out, but not really a lot of their, their um, oh, what do you want to call it? The, the people that, that were siding with them in the country. Uh, loyalists. Yeah, there you go. We'll just go with that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, not the people, they patriots, the people that, that worked with them, that collaborated with them. I collaborators. That's what I want to say. Um. You know, they don't really get their collaborators out. And so people are, are rightly afraid. You know, Taliban is not a gentle force. <laughs> and these people were collaborating with the United States. They wanted them out. And so people are desperate to get out. And this pullout is is just done by the seat of their pants immediately, incredibly selfishly. Uh, you saw some jarring graphic images of people clinging on to landing gear on planes. Yeah, just trying to that, was, that was absolutely and. In- it, yeah, I mean, number one most important takeaway is that was incredibly tragic. Yes. Number two is, in spite of the entire narrative being bullshit um, that got us to launch this war in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan is always going to be linked to 9-11. No one is going to think of it without immediately thinking of 9-11. Uh, the U.S. did that itself, selling the war. And when you think about that, you think about the tragedy of people, like, you know, falling from the World Trade Center. World Trade and Center. It, it's hard not to associate those images and see how, you know, from the damage and the disarray and the lack of change done by the U.S. in the last 20 years to associating the people falling off the plane on the way out. It's it's hard not to, to see how obviously little the United States cared or told any truth in the situation. It was just an immense amount of death and destruction for the sake of corporations as any us or any imperialist war always is and this this really wore it on its face um so yeah i mean there'll be people out there they'll 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 try to you know nitpick the stuff i mean we mentioned before like oh it's not exactly true that the us created the taliban or the taliban's the same as the the mujahideen that's some leftist rumor or, or you know whatever the hell right i mean people people will will snopes this into mostly true to death because they think that that technicality saves their argument or whatever. Um, don't fall for that crap. <laughs> no, uh, the, the, the positive to this, and there's not much cause it's not like, you know, the Taliban is some great force. The positive to this is the Taliban at least seems to be taking advice from Iran and working with Iran to a degree where Iran seems at least in this mood of so far, so good that the Taliban's not going to be, you know, overtly as oppressive to women as it was before, that the Taliban's going to be, you know, fairly like comparatively to, 
to its, you know, what it was 20 years ago, and even to the U.S. puppet government is is, is going to be comparatively um, tolerant. And if if nothing more than because, it, I mean, it doesn't have the same power structure it dealt with before, right? It's got to worry about much more powerful neighbors than than were there before and working trade with them after, you know, what the hell happened with, with the United States invading. That doesn't exactly make making the U.S. your only trade partner seem like very good prospects. Um, and, and so that's the one good thing. But, you know, it is the Taliban. So kind of that's more of a matter of power. <laughs> than a matter of intention. Yeah. Um, so, you know, timidly optimistic, I guess. I'm not super optimistic about the Taliban, but the one good thing is U.S. out is good. U.S. out is always good. I mean, even if even if the U.S. out is going to leave problems, the problems that the U.S. created, whether the U.S. created them or not, a country can't solve its problems while an imperialist is in there meddling. Okay, there would either have to be like a a China style, you know, a a nationalist revolution moving to a socialist revolution in one foul swoop, or the imperialist forces have to be out so a country can sort its problems out. It can't do that with imperialism breathing down its neck. And it's not like Afghanistan's, you know, suddenly free from imperialism. You know, it's not a super powerful country, Um, but at least the U.S. out gives some capacity there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's one of those and correct me if I'm I'm reading it wrong. It is not th- I don't think there's a scenario in which this is a good situation regardless. I don't think there's I, any but, like Yeah, yeah, but there wasn't a scenario with the US staying in was any better. Exactly. I mean, I, like I just said, you know, I mean, we were seeing news articles 2 years ago, very accurate ones, that US forces were killing more people than the Taliban and then there was those US forces plus the Taliban in the country instead of just the Taliban. You know, I mean, again, you could make a pretty solid argument that women's civil rights in urban areas specifically were mildly improved. And other than that, nobody benefited except, you know, the 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 people with U.S. handlers who were making a fuck ton of money on the corruption, right? I mean, we and we see how lucrative corruption could be. We're talking about the railroad stuff in this book uh-huh. right now, right? Uh-huh. You, had, you had a similar thing with just about every industry in Afghanistan because of, you know, the, the U.S. I mean, U.S. Army's invasions are, are loaded with corruption. It uh, What? David, <laughs> this is shocking. This is a revelation you've brought upon me. <laughs> okay. Uh, I Again, there are, there are other, there are other places that I'm sure have better have not better because David thank you so much again for your analysis it is always welcome and it is always enlightening uh for me at the very least if for nobody else uh but but is there anything else on on the Afghan situation that you feel like we really need to hit before we dive into the reading this week uh not that I have any expertise in um I know obviously some some sources that have have, you know uh dove in really good I know breakthrough news um, has been been working hard on that. They they've suddenly come up and they put out some really good uh, media there. But as far as anything that's that's you know down to a detail that we get into in this podcast and current events or within the realm of my expertise, no. Okay, good. That being said, it is time to continue our trudge through Black Reconstruction in America. <laughs> we are we are moving. 
at a at a solid pace. We are going to make our deadline. I swear it of of 10, 10 episodes. It is going to happen. Uh, and here we go. Chapter 15, Founding the Public School. How the Freedmen Yearn to Learn and Know, and with the guiding hand of the Freedmen's Bureau and the Northern School Marm, helped establish the public school in the South and taught his own teachers in New we- in the New England College transplanted to the Black South. It was soon after the war that a white member of Johnson's restored Louisiana legislature passed one of the schools set up by the Freedmen's Bureau in New Orleans. The grounds were filled with children. He stopped and looked intently and then asked, Is this a school? Yes, was the reply. What for N-words? Evidently, he threw up his hands. Well, well, he said, I have seen many an absurdity in my lifetime, but this is the climax. Hmm. That's a bold start to the chapter, Du Bois. Mm-hmm. I, you're setting me up to be very sad. If a poor, degraded, disadvantaged horde achieves sudden freedom and power, what could we ask of them in 10 years? To develop some, but surely not all, necessary social leadership, to seek the right sort of leadership from other groups, to strive for increase of knowledge so as to teach themselves wisdom and the rhythm of the united effort? This latter accomplishment crowns the work of Reconstruction. The advance of the Negro in education, helped by the the abolitionists, was phenomenal. But the greatest step was preparing his own teachers, the gift of New England, to the Black South. If the Negro public school system had been sustained, guided, and supported, the American Negro today would equal Denmark in literacy. It's a weird poll. Is Denmark like the most literate country in the world or something like that? That just seems like a strange poll. I don't know. What year is this? This is 1930. 19, like 30 something? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Denmark being really literate, 1930. That works. As it is, he surpasses Spain and Italy, the Balkans, and South America. And this is due to the Negro College, which despite determined efforts to curtail the efficacy of the Negro public school, and despite a sustained and violent attack upon higher education for black folk, nevertheless, through white northern philanthropy and black southern contributions, survived and furnished teachers and leaders for the Negro race at the time of its greatest crisis. The eagerness to learn among American Negroes was exceptional in the case of the poor and recently emancipated folk. Usually, with a protective philosophy, such degraded masses regarded ignorance as natural and necessary, or even exalt their own traditional wisdom and discipline over book learning. Or they assume that knowledge is for higher beings and not for the likes of us. American Negroes never acted thus. The very feeling of inferiority which slavery forced upon them fathered an intense desire to rise out of their condition by means of education. Of the 488,000 free Negroes in the United States in 1860, 32,629 were attending school, and only 91,736 were unable to read and write. In the slave states, there were 3,651 colored children attending school, supported by the free Negroes. The mass of the slaves could have no education. The laws in this point were explicit and severe. There was teaching here and there by indulgent masters or by clandestine Negro schools, but in the main, the laws were followed. All the slave states had such laws, and after the Nat Turner insurrection in Virginia, these laws were strengthened and more carefully enforced. As of... As late as May 1862, Edward Stanley, whom Lincoln appointed provisional governor of North Carolina, sought to consolidate white people when he stopped a Negro school at Newburn. He said that he had been sent there to restore the old order of things and that the laws of North Carolina forbade the teaching of slaves to read and write. 
and he could not expect success in the undertaking if he encouraged the violation of the law. At the time of emancipation, not all Southern Negroes were illiterate. In South Carolina, a majority of the nearly 10,000 free Negroes could read and write, perhaps 5% of the slaves. But illiteracy among the colored population was well over 95% in 1863, which meant that less than 150,000 of the 4 million slaves emancipated could read and write. The first great mass movement for public education at the expense of the state in the South came from Negroes. Many leaders before the war had advocated general education, but few had been listened to. Schools for in- indigents and paupers were supported here and there, but and more or less spasmodically. Some states had elaborate plans, but they were not carried out. Public education for all at public expense was, in the South, a Negro idea. Prior to the abolition of slavery, there was no general public education system, properly speaking in the southern states except perhaps in North Carolina. In some populous centers, there were free schools, in some localities, academies, and colleges, but for the most part, no adequate provision was made for the education of the poor whites. Emerging from their bondage, the Negroes in the very beginning manifested the utmost eagerness for instruction, and their hunger was met by a corresponding readiness on the part of the North to make provisions for it. The original state constitution of North Carolina in 1775 provided for public education, but there was no appropriation for the schools, and the direct result was the establishment of the state university. In 1825, a literary foundation was established towards defraying the cost of the public schools. The school system was sketched in 1839, but without an executive head and with small funds. In 1852, a superintendent of public instruction was appointed. His work for a long time was confined to propaganda, and he especially noted the lack of any demand for public schools and the, that feeling that such schools were simply for paupers. <clears throat> so again, this is a pretty big hurdle about who belongs and doesn't belong in a given school. And that's a great thing to have. You really want to have mm, institutional hurdles to anyone being in any kind of school. It <laughs> yeah. makes things a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. So, nevertheless, the work of the first superintendent, C.H. Wiley, was important as propaganda, but only as propaganda, because at the same at the time of war, only here and there in the state is there a schoolhouse for whites of very inferior description, and with long distance between. There was no state support of schools. The burden of public education, such as it was, rested on local authorities. In South Carolina, there was even less effort. In 1811, there was an act to establish free schools throughout the state. It provided for as many free schools in each election district as the district was entitled to representatives in the lower house. After 40 years of operation, 1811-1885, Governor Adams pronounced the system a failure, saying of the handling of funds, great inequalities prevailed, and during 27 years, returns were not made were made in only During 27 years, returns were made in only five years. The small districts and parishes did not receive regular sums, and the amounts received did not have a proportion of the number of schools or the population. After 1815, the annual appropriation was 37,000. The annual appropriation was 37,000 annually. That just seems redundant. Uh, Nearly 1.5 million in all, of which 109,000 was accounted for. Yeah. 
In December 1855, Governor Adams pleaded for the appointment of a superintendent of education. Let us make at least this effort, and if the poor of the land are hopelessly doomed to ignorance, poverty, and crime, you'll at least feel conscious of having done your duty. He was, of course, referring only to the whites and did not himself seem to believe much in the educatability of the poor. In Virginia, Armstead reports that in 1851, less than one half the poor white children were attending any schools, and those attended only 11 weeks in the year. Holy shit! Yeah, that is that is not very long schooling. <laughs> uh, this pitiable result was obtained with a cost to the state of $69,000. Nice. Uh, Thomas nice. Jefferson in, <laughs> in the 18th century had evolved a school system for whites with industrial schools for Negroes, but there was a bitter and successful opposition. And as Jefferson himself said, such a permissive scheme was doomed to failure from the very moment of its inception. So black people can get, uh, if I understand this right, these are trade schools, black trade schools couldn't even get trade schools without immense racist opposition. Um, in noted George- noted race incur noted noted you know abolitionist thomas jefferson God. acknowledging that he couldn't get it through <laughs> that's that's true i don't know if i'd listen to him as the voice of reason uh-huh uh, in Georgia, the Constitution of 1777 had spoken of schools, but nothing was done. Some private academies were incorporated in 1783, and permission was given to the governor to grant a thousand acres of free land for erection of free schools. But few, if any, grants were made. In 1815, 250000 was appropriated, known as the Poor School Fund. Nothing further was done until the legislature of 1851, when something was added to this fund to pay tuition for the children of parents too poor to pay anything. So, as is the most American way, before uh-huh. Reconstruction essentially forced public schools as as part of its prerogative, even public schools were, were means-tested. Yeah, and they, they have done this forever. They will do this for always. Um they will push through any little thing and then try and rip it back as, as much as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And as fast as they possibly can, as fast as they possibly can. The whole fund for education as late as 1865 was only $23,000. Governor Brown urged a system of public schools before the war, but the legislature did nothing but make a small increase of the poor school fund. In 1858, a movement was started in Atlanta, looking toward the establishment of a system of free schools in Georgia. A.N. Wilson went to Rhode Island to look into the public school system there and on his return held several meetings culminating in a meeting October 6, 1858, called by the mayor. The chairman appointed a committee, but some of the members of the committee took charge of the entire movement and blocked it. The original movers, seeing that they had lost control, withdrew and the proposal fell through. The Constitution of 1865, under the provisional government, gave the legislature permission to appropriate money for the promotion of learning and science and for education of the people and provided for the resumption of the regular exercises of the University of Georgia. Go Bulldogs. I... (laughs) In the first session of the legislature after the war, a bill to establish public school was introduced, but postponed until late in 1866. By a vote of 62 to 58 in the House and an equally close vote in the Senate, a bill to establish a system of public schools was squeezed through, but only on the condition that nothing was to be done until 1868. This proposal lapsed because of the Reconstruction Acts of 1867. 
Thus, although there had been much talk and some legislation on the subject, there had been no regularly organized system of common schools supported by public taxation in Georgia prior to the Civil War. Mississippi did lip service to the idea of public education in her earlier constitutions, but little tangible was accomplished. The 16th section fund given to the states by the federal government for education, amounting to less than $15 million in Mississippi, was totally mismanaged and lost. While tens of thousands of white children grew up in ignorance, Florida tried about 1850 to obtain schools for whites from taxes on certain sales of slaves with small results. Love that. Love that. Love the concept of let's educate white people on the sale of slaves. That is... mm. Couldn't be more on the nose if they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Alabama and North Carolina had the best pre-war systems due to the enthusiasm of certain teachers. But even here, there was no disposition among the planters to accept taxation for public education. Joel Riggs, comptroller of the state in 1851, said, Perhaps of all trust funds, none has been so greatly mismanaged as the school fund of Alabama. Roll Tide. The experience of the other southern states. <laughs> this is going to be an entire state. SEC. This is going to be an entire SEC episode. Just deal with it. The experience of other southern states shows similar neglect and indisposition to educate the poor whites. The fact of the matter was that in the pre-war South, there were two insuperable obstacles to a free public school system. The first was the attitude of the property of the owners of property. They did not propose under any circumstances to be taxed for the public education of the laboring class. This you hear all the time. Why Why should I pay for other for these kids' schools? Yeah, exactly. This is still a prevailing attitude with property people because... 100%. Assholes. 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 They believe you remember in California a few years ago, there were droughts. And there were people that were saying that because they were paid more in taxes, they should have been entitled to more water. Water, a public good that everyone needs to survive. And they would they they felt they deserved to water their lawns more than other people deserve to bathe and not die of thirst. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. They believe that laborers did not need education, that it made their exploitation more difficult. And that if any of them were really worth educating, they would somehow escape their condition by their own efforts. Bootstraps, baby! The second obstacle was that the white laborers did not demand education and saw no need of it, save in exceptional cases. They accepted without murmur their subordination to the slaveholders and looked for escape from their condition only to the possibility of becoming slaveholders themselves. Education they regarded as a luxury connected with wealth. Still a thing today. Mm Mm-hmm. It was only the other part of the laboring class, the black folk, who connected knowledge with power, who believed that education was the stepping stone to wealth and respect, and that wealth without education was crippled. Perhaps the very fact that so many of them had seen the wealthy slaveholders at close range and knew the extent of ignorance and inefficacy and efficiency among them led to the extraordinary mass demand on the part of the black laboring class for education. And it was this demand that the effective force of the, for the establishment of the public schools in the South on a permanent basis for all people and all classes. If the planters opposed schools for the poor whites, they all the more regarded Negro schools as absurd. The unalterable conviction of most white Southerners was that Negroes could not and would not learn. And thus their education involved an unjustifiable waste of private property for public disaster. D.R. Grattan, a native Virginian, testified before the Reconstruction Committee in 1866. 
They cannot educate themselves. They are not disposed to educate themselves. In the face of this, listen to the words of Booker T. Washington. Few people who were not right in the midst of the scenes can form any exact idea of the intense desire with which the people of my race showed for education. It was a whole race trying to go to school. Few were too young and none too old to make the attempt to learn. As fast as any kind of teachers could be secured, not only were day schools filled, but night schools as well. The great ambition for older people was to learn to read the Bible before they died. With this end in view, men and women who were 50 and 75 years old would be found in the night schools. Sunday schools were formed soon after freedom, but the principal book studied in the Sunday school was the spelling book. Day school, night school, and Sunday school were always crowded, and often many had to be turned away for want of room. I, that, they wanted I mean, to learn so badly. So desperately. They wanted, they just wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing looking back that just the sheer conditions that that you know black people were i mean i mean comparatively even to now um were put through in the time of of slavery that they were so incredibly just in, innately revolutionary right they they understood what they needed to be free um and and it was i mean it, it's we see this even in socialist revolutions. Now it's the first thing socialists go to do is expand literacy, right? Nothing is more liberating than education. No, it is a hundred percent. The liber education. And, and it's the reason we do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Education in and of itself is liberatory and knowledge in and of itself is, is a powerful, powerful tool. And the more it can be spread, the more liberatory it can be. And, and yeah. nobody, nobody understood that more than an enslaved group of people. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, liberation is a power dynamic, right? And again, all this education goes to nothing if you can't use it to gain power or maintain power. But it is exceedingly difficult to obtain or maintain power without education. And so because it is such a tool of gaining and maintaining power, it is incredibly important for liberation as well as just benefiting, you know, general quality of life. Exactly. Uh, The first educational efforts came during the war when the Negroes, refugees and soldiers were taught at various camps and places of refuge at their own pressing request. This was followed by the efforts of philanthropic societies. Schools were started among the Negroes of the Peninsula of Virginia and of Port Royal, South Carolina, as soon as they were captured. In Virginia, when federal authority was established in the Southeast, the American Missionary Association asked to work among the freedmen and was welcomed by Governor Butler. The first day day school was established on September 17, 1861, in the town of Hampton in a small brown house near the seminary, a school formerly used by the whites. This school was taught by Mrs. Mary Peak under the auspices of the American Missionary Association. Mrs. Peak was a mulatto whose father was an Englishman. She was born a free woman and received a fair education at her home in Alexandria. She wanted to help her race, and she had gone among the slaves during slavery to teach them to read and write. She held her school at Hampton, however, only until the next spring, when she died of consumption at the early age of 39. 
Her school was not only the first one at Hampton, but the first of the kind in the South. Around the small school, she began she began followed by other schools in the Hampton vicinity, all of which led to the Hampton Institute of today. In January 1862, Solomon Peck had opened a school at Beaufort, South Carolina, and Bernard Lee at Hilton Head. In February 1862, Edward L. Pierce and General Thomas W. Sherman sent out a call to the highly favored and philanthropic people of the North to send volunteers to teach both old and young rudiments of civil civilization and Christianity. Freedmen's Aid Associates were formed at Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, and 41 men and 12 women's teachers went to Port Royal in March. Eight schools were in operation by May, and within a year, 30 and with 3,000 students. Officers held schools for black soldiers, and many Negroes who had bought abandoned lands opened schools at their own expense. Port Royal schools in 1855 had 60 teachers. Schools for the children had been supported by the free Negroes of Charleston since 1744, openly at first, clandestinely after the law forbade them. When Johnson was inaugurated, the event was celebrated in Charleston, South Carolina, by opening the public schools to all children without distinction of color. Twenty-five of the 42 teachers were colored. The Tribune said, March 10, 1865, So the thing is done. The loyal white people and the Irish and German population have shown that they are quite willing to let their children attend the same school with the loyal blacks. Although it is true that no attempt to unite them in the same room or classes would have been tolerated at the time. But in the playgrounds, white and black boys join in the same sports as they do in public streets. And there can be no doubt now that this great step has been made. All the prejudice against equal educational advantages will speedily vanish, and indeed, in the various hypocrisy in the city, where old families have aided in obliterating all the complexion distinctions by mingling their blood with that of the slaves. How I wish that were true, but unfortunately we know <laughs> the Jim Crow days. Mm-hmm. Um, in the rooms where the colored children assembled, there were many children with clear blue eyes, pure white skins, long silky hair without kinks, and yet they were classed with the Negro population by the former rulers of the city. Who is this I'm quoting and why are they so weird about the description of white kids? <laughs> it's the Tribune. The Tribune. The Tribune. Oh, Just boy. the Tribune. Yep. Uh, A month later came a significant celebration. I walked to the square with William Lloyd Garrison. Think of the great pioneer abolitionist of Boston in the streets of Charleston. As Mr. Garrison entered the square, he was introduced to about 2,000 children by Mr. James Redpath, superintendent of public instruction. When the children were told who Mr. Garrison was, they surrounded him, threw up their hats and caps, caught hold of him, fell down over each other, and sent up a shout of such welcome and greeting as I may softly say was never before witnessed in the soil of South Carolina. And I believe these kids were pretty excited to meet this guy, but just the way this was described step by step, this feels like moves in a musical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. Many private schools were established, one by Jonathan C. Gibbs, afterwards superintendent of schools in Florida, another by F.L. Cardozo, who became state treasurer of South Carolina, and others in various parts of the state. In the second year of the freedom, 23 schools in different localities were built by Negroes, aided by the Freedmen's Bureau and philanthropy. 
The freedmen contributed to their support of the teachers $12,000 and $500 to schoolhouses. In Beaufort, the Negroes opened a building for free high school bought and supported entirely by them as early as 1867. In the West, General Grant appointed Colonel John Eaton, afterwards United States Commissioner of Education, to be superintendent of the freedmen in 1862. He sought to establish and regulate schools and succeeded in organizing a large system. Louisiana had schools for free Negroes, supported by them before the war. Afterward, the Army established a large system. On March 22, 1864, General Banks, on his own responsibility, had made provisions for the establishment of schools for freedmen by an order issued which did not meet the approval of many in Louisiana. You don't say. He appointed, no. he appointed a board of education of three persons and granted it large powers. It was to establish one or more common schools in every school district defined by the provost marshal to acquire by purchase or otherwise lands for school sites to erect schoolhouses and to employ teachers as far as practicable among the loyal citizens of Louisiana. To furnish books, to provide every adult freedman with a library costing $2.50, this amount to be deducted from the wages of the said freedmen, and finally to levy for those purposes a school tax on the real and personal property in every school district. I'm assuming that 250 is pooled together in a public library of some kind. Has is to that, be, yeah, has to be. Otherwise, you know, I don't know, I guess they're making sure people have $2.50 worth of books, which would be a lot more back then. A lot more. When the collection of the general tax for Negro schools was suspended in Louisiana by military order, the colored people were greatly aroused and sent in petitions. One of these petitions, 30 feet in length. Holy shit. That's quite a petition. <laughs> that's a scroll. That's a that's a scroll. Represented 10,000 Negroes who signed mostly with marks. They offered to pay a special tax if the schools could be kept going. When the Confederates returned to domination, the public schools, which had attained a degree of efficacy never before reached in the South, were greatly curtailed. 110 of the teachers, many of them native-born, were dismissed at once, and their places filled with intolerant Confederates. The most noted of the super racist scabs, super racist scabs. The most noted of the clandestine schools for free colored children was opened in Savannah in 1818 or 1819 by a colored Frenchman named Julien Fromontaine from Santo Domingo. Up to 1829, this school was taught openly. After December 22nd, 1829, it was made a penal offense to teach a Negro or free person of color to read or write. Fraun Montaigne's school, however, flourished clandestinely for many years and in a sense laid the foundation for the new state system of public instruction, which gave equal school privileges to all children regardless of race or color. The public school system of Georgia started in the conference in Savannah, December 1864. I got to stop you. I just I can't I can't stop seeing the parallels between making it illegal to teach a black person in in. uh, 1829 in Louisiana and the fact that like in say Atlanta, Georgia right now, it is illegal to feed a homeless person. Yeah. Or it is illegal to leave water for migrant refugees crossing the border. Do, um, do the same thing, but for critical race theory, if you want to do education, you have states explicitly saying you cannot teach 
history as it exists. Yeah, that's an interesting one, too, because that is that is such an overt dog whistle because critical race theory is a real thing, but it's a real thing that is optionally taught in some colleges, unless you're taking the broad definition of don't whitewash everything about American history and assume it's a shining beacon on the hill. And so when they make that illegal, they just mean like, don't ever teach that slavery was bad, basically. Exactly. The public school system of Georgia started in the Conference of Savannah in December 1864, when Stanton, Secretary of War, and General Sherman met five or six leading Negroes and decided upon schools. It was a notable gathering. The colored committee consisted of eight or ten leading colored ministers of Savannah. Secretary Stanton was astonished at the wisdom and tact of those untutored blacks and unobserved and observed that the men's replies to his questions were so shrewd, so wise, and so comprehensive, they were picked men of the race in Georgia of great native ability and would have attracted attention in any assembly. It was decided to have the schools opened at once for the colored people who should apply. A time was set for examination of teachers, and a number of colored men and women applied. The colored citizens of Savannah were greatly encouraged and assisted in their efforts by the Reverend James Lynch of the AME Church, an educated colored man who afterwards became Secretary of State for Mississippi early in January 1865. The Reverend J.W. Alvord, Secretary of the American Tract Society, Boston, who had done business in Savannah for a number of years before, gave his assistance. He and Mr. Lynch examined the teachers. Ten colored persons were found competent. It was very difficult to find buildings in which to locate the schools. The most available place was the old Bryan Slave Mart. Oh, that feels dirty. Yeah. Which had recently served as the pen for which relatives of many of these Negroes had been sold. The bars which marked the slave stalls were knocked down to make space for seating. To this and other places flocked the free people of every age and shade, eager for that book learning which really seemed to them the key to their advance. By December 18th... W.E.B. Du Bois with the first instance of book smart, book learning. Uh, he's already he's already used book learning, literally the words book learning in parentheses or, or in you know scare quotes in this book. He He's there, he's ready to go. By December 1865, the colored people of Savannah had opened a number of schools with 500 pupils, and they were contributing a fund of $1,000 for the support of the teachers. In January 1866, the Negroes of Georgia organized the Georgia Educational Association, whose object was to induce the freedmen to establish and support schools in their own counties and neighborhoods. In 1867, the 191-day schools and 45-night schools were reported as existing. Of these, 96 were reported either wholly or in part supported by the freedmen, who also owned 57 of the school buildings. So over, over a quarter of them they owned in spite of their poverty. Over half of them they supported in spite of their poverty. They had to go to where their huma- humanity was robbed away and they and their relatives were sold as commodities to knock down, literally knock down physical barriers to, to make it a more appropriate schoolroom and build these schools. These were people that, again, were incredibly hungry for their own education and were incredibly 
revolutionary, and we should not let that be downplayed. Amen. Persistent propaganda represents the South after the war as being largely in favor of Negro education. This is a flat contradiction of plain historical evidence. Dunning says the Negroes were disliked and feared almost in exact proportion to their manifestation of intelligence and capacity, and there were many reasons in the utterances of Southerners to support his generalization. Education in the Negroes, they thought, would be labor lost, resulting in injury instead of benefit to the working class. The teachers of the Freedmen's Bureau or of private philanthropies interfered with labor and encouraged directly or indirectly insolence to employers. Schooling, felt the South, ruins a N-word. The American Freedmen's Commission reports that the Negroes' attempts at education provoked the most intense and bitter hostilities as evincing a desire to render themselves equal to the whites. Their churches and schoolhouses in many places were destroyed by mobs. N-word teachers was one of the most obvious epithets that the Southern vocabulary furnished. Even in the North, this prejudice existed among some of the avowed friends of the freed people, and it is a singular fact that the one of the early freedmen's aid societies was rent asunder by the unwillingness of a particular, uh, on the unwillingness of a part of its members to cooperate in any movement looking toward the education of the Negro, though they were willing to provide him with food, clothing, in order to prevent suffering and death. That being said, oh, we're not even going to finish the Dunning quote. It's got two more paragraphs. The teachers who went from the North were soon disillusioned if they were at all influenced by any other than the most serious missionary spirit. Ostracism is a mild term for the disdain with which they were regarded as N-word teachers. The white people of Virginia were shocked at the efforts of northern philanthropists to educate Negroes, and the papers sneered at them. So Dunning is being very plain here about the just immense mountain of racism these people are fighting uphill against. Yes. That being said... This has been Mark's Badness. We are a podcast that reads books. Uh, there are a number of different ways that you can get a hold of us if you would like to. If you want to, you can email us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter. We're at marksmadnesspod there on Twitter. Uh, if you wanted to join a more intimate community that doesn't involve David unless he's summoned, you can join our Discord, which is the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. Like we are bat the, signal. the the link is in our Twitter bio. If you send up the bat signal for David, he is usually very good at showing up. Uh, I will give him that. Uh, but the Discord is just a small community of people that are, again, if you listen to the show, are like minded, and are people that you would probably like to interact with, and vent with, and talk to on a day to day basis. Um, we also play Final Fantasy 14 a lot. We do a lot of that. Uh, there's also a book club, and the book club right now is reading Caliban and the Witch. If you are interested in that work, they have started uh that one, and they are they are uh I think one section in. But the book club meets every Friday and is a great place to come if you want to join like-minded theory folks. Uh, that being said, David, I believe it is time for a disclaimer. Yeah, so obviously we started this off uh, because Nathan wanted to come 
uh, oh, come to me and, you know, read Capital together. Uh, that way, you know, we had someone to discuss it with. We got the most out of the book because that's what you want to do with theory um, or, of course, you know, history like we're doing here is, you know, read it with other people, read it in a group, uh, get the most out of it that you need to get and relate it to, you, to how it applies to your life, but also, you know, make sure you best understand the context and the history surrounding it. Um, so, you know, since the beginning of that, we kind of recorded it on the side just in case we can make that group a little bigger. And lo and behold, this is what we have. So hopefully you're in a reading group in a political education group that your org that your group you're organizing in your party is is running and you're reading these works. And we can be one more voice, one more source of input or context or background, um, just one more sense of everything to your reading group. Uh, save for that. Let's say they're reading something, you know, a little bit shorter, more applicable to what you're organizing around. Um, and you're reading this on your own. Hopefully we can be your reading group and we can give you that extra point of input. And save for that, um, let's say, you know, you just need it summarized, like when we do, you know, books like Capital or State Revolution, or you just want a little bit of enhanced ebook like we do here. Uh, whatever it is we can do to make these works more accessible to you, uh, because we want to get this theory out there guiding your actions. Because when you animate this theory into actions, uh, whether it be mutual aid, whether it be further education, arming, whatever, uh, when you put this into action, that's something called praxis. And uh, that animating the theory drives us closer to revolution. And of course, you know, there is no praxis without theory and theory is completely useless with that praxis, without that praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.